This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined, as always, by the Tax Museum curator over at the university, down the road with a slightly lighter shade of blue, Jeffrey L. Hoops. Jeffrey? Hello. How, how are you doing? doing today? I'm good. How are you? So good. The uh, tax museum looks as full as ever. Lots of... Uh, Bursting at the seams. We're waiting for lo- the, the new uh, addition to be built. Lots of invisible patrons walking around behind you. Uh, what do we have going on today? So we have with us today uh, Doug Shackelford. So Doug is was my boss up until recently. He retired. And so now that he's not my boss and holds no power over me, we can bring him on tax chats to uh, chat. So Doug, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. I'm uh, Doug Shackelford, and uh, I'm thrilled to be on here. Um, the uh, Particularly with you two guys, uh, because I was on the faculty at uh, UNC for almost 33 years. And um, Scott was one of our PhD students. And uh, in fact, one of the best things uh, during my entire career was all the great PhD students we had at Carolina. And then he went down the road. And uh, I think Jeff and I met probably when he was just starting as a PhD student and studied under, he and I both studied under the same great uh, guy at uh, Michigan, Joel Slimrod. And so Jeff's been a great addition to the Carolina faculty for a number of years now. So good to be with you guys and um, thrilled to talk some tax. So Doug, I thought you were going to say one of the greatest things in your career was working with PhD students, but I thought you were going to say one of the greatest things in my the career is when Scott, Scott left. finally left and went to Duke. <laughs> <laughs> we got him out of here. He finally graduated. I'm- I'm trying to be as nice as I can here on on the uh, tax chats. And the, the, the second greatest day in Doug's career was going to be the day that Jeff didn't get tenure. But Jeff did get tenure, so now Doug had to retire instead. So here we are. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> yeah. So what we're hoping to talk about today, or what we're going to talk to uh, talk about today, is the relationship between the stock market and capital gains taxes. So could you just start out by telling us a little bit about how our capital gains tax system works, and then we'll move on to talk about uh, what that has to do with the stock market? Yeah, well, the capital gains tax is, is a weird bird. Um, you, uh, when uh, you dispose of an asset, you pay a tax on the difference between what uh, you sell it for, dispose of it, and what your basis is in it. So when you, say, so when you just say dispose of it, you mean sell it. It's not like there's a trash can, you like dispose it. That's correct. Uh, or it could be exchange or some other way. Okay. Um, and so you, you have this gain or you potentially have a loss, but the capital gains tax is levied on that. Now, that sounds pretty simple, but the, uh, the taxes uh, goes through this, for the individuals, go through this weird netting process, uh, which makes it hard to figure out what the capital gains tax might be levied on any particular sale because you have capital gains, long-term capital gains, short-term capital gains, you have losses, and you go through this weird netting process, which we can talk about if we want to, and out pops a number. 
And over time, except for a brief period in the 80s, uh, the long-term capital gains tax rate has been lower than the typical tax rate levied on wages and other uh, other sources of income like that. So there has been a, a desire to do whatever we can to convert things into this more favorable tax rate. And that's led to all sorts of interesting tax activities. So, so isn't the easiest way to convert it into long-term, just hold it longer? Well, that's one way. What are the other that's ways? Well, we might be able to find all sorts of things in which uh, there's limited economic activity, but we have certainly given the appearance of having met that standard that would convert it. Um, so uh, this, this difference in ordinary capital rates sits at the foundation of lots of sheltering. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a whole different topic. So what we're talking about today, again, we have this capital gain system, this complicated system that if you sell, sell a stock or sell some other kind of capital asset, you have to pay taxes on it. It's for a game. So the question, though, is, you know, you have this stock and the capital gains tax rate can change. You know, we bring in a new president who's said that he's going to drop the tax rate or she said she's going to increase the tax rate and the tax, capital gains tax rates can change. So what do we know about the stock market and capital gains taxes? So let's, I'll give you a, a scenario. Let's imagine we know the tax rate, the capital gains tax rate is going to increase. What do we expect the stock market to do? Well, I think before we answer that question, we have, we got to go through a bunch of uh, necessary conditions. I'm going to sort of put in quotes the marginal investor. Uh, we don't really know what a marginal investor is, but let's just imagine for a minute we could we could identify a marginal investor. So what do you, so what what do you mean by marginal investor? Who like we don't know who specifically it is, but what does that mean? The investor who sets the price, the market value. So it's where the supply and demand curves cross. Um, there's this fictitious marginal investor. That marginal investor has to have certain qualities um, in order for there to be, uh, in order for the capital gains tax rate change that you just um, uh, suggested to affect the market price of, let's say, just an ordinary share of stock. So here's some of those conditions that are going to have to hold. The, the first thing is the that marginal investor needs to be an individual investor who's subject to the uh, capital gains tax we were just talking about. Now, lots of equity is held by investors who are not individual investors. Uh, could be pensions, uh, individual retirement accounts, uh, could be corporations, could be foreigners. There's a whole slew of equity that is not held by individuals in taxable accounts subject to the capital gains account, capital gains tax. Um, the the next thing is this has to be a uh, a this marginal investor has to be someone who actually complies with the tax law. So there's lots of suggestions the capital gains tax is not paid, uh, let's say, with the same level of compliance that something like labor income might face. Um, but let's assume the marginal investor is an individual, does face the capital gains tax, is compliant with the law. Uh, then this person has to be subject to this netting rules that I just went through, uh, suggested a moment ago. So their long-term capital gains tax, long-term capital gains on all their investments um, in that particular uh, year have to exceed their long-term capital losses and also have to exceed the um, long-term capital, long, the short-term capital losses 
over their short-term capital gains. So you get through this weird process. Uh, so it could be very, it could very well be that I have uh, very large capital gains on a particular stock, and maybe all of us do because we invested in something that appreciated a great deal. And uh, the tax rate changes up or down, but it won't actually uh, have any effect on the market value because the rest of the market, uh, like in a year like this year, has gone down. And thus, we have plenty of capital losses, short or long term, to offset it. Um, we got some more conditions. We've got to assume the marginal investor actually intends to sell these shares at some point. Maybe they, the intention is to hold it and donate it to charity in which there'll never be a capital gains tax applied, or maybe the intention is to hold it until they die. Uh, a lot of capital assets are held by old people like me, not young people like the two of you. And so we're just waiting around till the grim reaper comes and, and uh, saves us from facing all these uh, onerous capital gains taxes. So far, all of these assumptions are kind of the same as the first one, but just different ways of saying it in that the person who owns the stock will end up paying taxes. And whether that's they're not taxable, they want to cheat on their taxes, they're too old or they're just going to die, so they won't pay any taxes after they die, they're going to donate to charity. So you just like need them to be paying taxes on this stock. Uh, yeah, but I think it's important to march list, list through. Just I, I completely agree. There's form, you know, there's ugly and then there's real, really understanding just how ugly ugly is sometimes. Yeah, yep. I'm with you. Uh, you know, I, I think you also got to think about – I. The, the marginal investor intends to sell during this period that we have this new tax change. Yep. So it's got to be during that horizon. Um, and I that, also sorry, think and by it, that mean, mean, so the new president could say, I'm going to change taxes this year, but the next president in four years could change them yet again. And if you're going to change, if you're going to sell in six years, then you don't care what the tax rate's going to be for the next four years. Right. And then you've got to make sure that I, that the in, marginal investor didn't anticipate that this change was going to occur. So I think, and it's particularly for uh, researchers trying to run quasi-experiments, this is probably the most prob problematic thing you face, which is, as you suggested, uh, we just went through elections, and uh, I can assure you that this marginal investor, who's probably a highly intelligent uh, investor, has already internalized some of the election results and changed their priors about what they think future tax laws will be. And so it may be very, very difficult to identify if indeed the capital gains tax does affect prices at, when that occurred. Maybe it occurred last Tuesday night, you know, around midnight or something. Um, I'm not sure when we're going to find out it affected. So you got to go through all those sorts of things and probably some others I can't even think of right now before we're going to we're going to be fairly confident in saying that the capital gains tax rate will have an effect on equity in some direction. So can I just uh, follow up on that a little bit? One of the things that you said was um, that the thing needs to be a surprise. And just to clarify, I think that's true if you're a researcher trying to like figure out if something actually happened. But if it's not a surprise, the if all of the other conditions are met... Um, the price may still change. We just might not know when it changes or it might gradually change. And it might be like impossible for us to figure out by exactly how much it changed, but it probably did change. We just can't like figure it out and study it very easily. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a fair statement. All right. So we have all these things, We've got all these conditions. Um, I seem to remember that you have a study that I was forced to read one time many years ago as a PhD student where we had in fact, 
a situation where many of these conditions were met and you studied it. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. If you can remember to that far back in your career, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. So, so back in ancient times, um, we were using papyrus, uh, leaves to write papers on, um, you know, what What got me intrigued in this particular area was um, if you you go over and visit uh, our friends in finance, uh, you, you won't ever see any models of like the market value of equity or, to put, or how you value some stock price. It will never have, or I've never seen one that it has like that function uh, has something about the capital gains tax. Um, you know, when people talk about what's the what what should the price of Apple stock be today, they, they don't have anything about the, the possible capital gains tax that might be levied on investors who meet all these conditions we were just talking about. And so that got me thinking: uh, if indeed it matters, uh, then why wouldn't it be in there? Uh, else, we are not able to properly measure. Uh, and maybe their stock prices are mispriced using our existing um, measures. And this isn't just something going on in the academic world. This is something I, uh, going on in the, uh, Wall Street. And so perhaps there's a trading opportunity here if one were to capture the right tax effect. Um, and so that led me to, so we need to start looking for the lowest hanging fruit, the situations where it would be most likely you would find an effect because of these challenges that you got on the experimental side that we were mentioning a moment ago, surprise or those sorts of things. Um, so I think we were able in several studies to identify times when it actually, you, you can find that changes in the capital gains tax rate mattered. Um, so I can, I can give two or three different papers that I was involved with. Um, I did one many, many years ago with Wayne Lansman, and uh, it happened to be around the RGR Nabisco buyout in 1989. And in that particular situation, it was a hostile takeover. And so what we were able to show was that the the people who sold the earlier in that hostile takeover period were people who were going to face less capital gains tax on their sales because we were able to get actual shareholder uh, information. Um, and so that make that that implies that um, what I would demand as my price to sell is a function of how much taxes I would have to pay, and thus uh, those who faced a high tax liability were were withholding their supply of shares until they got a higher price. And so tell me how it worked. There was like an initial offer, like, oh, we'll give you 10 bucks per share. And then some people sell and they're like, well, we got to buy more shares than that. So we're going to have to offer $11 a share and more people sell. And you could go in and find out who those people were. And you could say, oh, we can see that the people who sold first either had some losses built in. So they had no capital gains to bear or they were tax exempt for some reason, foreigners or something. And as you, when when you get to like the last group of people who sell, it's like the people who have owned the stock since they're, they inherited it when they were like a little kid and they have like zero basis. So they're going to have to pay like a huge capital gain. And those people are like, we're not selling unless you really give us a great offer. Is that kind of the way it worked? That's exactly it. Exactly it. Now that was a really clean, pretty setting. Um, But then, then we did some other papers that were, sort of trying to find out how much could you generalize in settings where you didn't have to nat- naturally sell. Um, so one that uh, Mark Lang and I did uh, in 1997, um, there was a, a really stunning uh, change in the capital gains tax rate. Um, 
Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich made a did a did a backroom deal that that didn't leak out. The unholy and alliance. So, yes, <laughs> long ago, back, back when things like that happened. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what we found there was that um, stocks that did not pay dividends um, jump. The capital gains tax rate was cut. Stocks that weren't paying dividends had a much bigger response in that particular period than those that were paying dividends. So you could think in terms of if you were likely to be receiving the proceeds from those returns in the form of capital gains, this news was better to you than if you were likely to be receiving some or most of the returns in the form of dividends, which were not the dividend tax rate was not changing. Uh, so same principle, same idea um, that you would see in there. Um, we went on to do some other papers in which we looked at things around uh, a stock goes into the S&P 500 index. Um, so all the index following um, funds have got to buy up company X, which company X yesterday was not in the S&P 500, but today it is in the S&P 500. So they have to go out and presumably they're going to buy from people, if we just focus on the capital gains tax, they're going to buy from people who there is no capital gains tax effect because they don't want to pay any extra amount. The same way, Scott, you just laid out the RGR situation. But perhaps there's such a, there's such a high need to put these stocks in these index funds, and there's a limited supply that eventually you have to get the ones that have uh, highly appreciated stock and people are going to demand compensation for the capital gains tax they're going to have to pay. Uh, and that's exactly what we found. Uh, in the stocks that had appreciated the most, um, the price went up the most in order to get them in the 500 index. And there was no reason to think particularly those stocks should demand a higher return uh, except for the capital gains tax was one that's in there. We found similar type things around earnings announcements. The, uh, the, the boost to uh, positive earnings announcements was correlated with how the stock had done uh, in the last year or so, as though people were holding on until they could go over that one-year holding period um, and we had a nice little uh, additional effect there. The holding period hasn't always been one year. So we could look at different holding periods over different times and see that, yeah, it, it depends on when it is. So, again, uh, if you really want my shares the day before they go long, long term, you're going to have to pay extra to entice me to come. So in, it seems like in maybe, – maybe this isn't true, but um, it feels like over time more and more equities have are held by – in, in tax efficient vehicles and fewer and fewer are held by individuals. So like everybody, everybody now has an IRA, whereas, you know, 30 years ago, so many people just had defined benefit plans that it was in a pension and I guess the pension zone, but I don't know. And then, then ETFs are very tax efficient. ETFs didn't even exist in a previous existence of the world. Um, do you think if you redid those studies, you know, in like, it's been what, those were like 2003, 2004 type papers, we're now almost 20 years later. Do you think that like the rise of the tax efficient investment vehicles would might maybe change those results? What do you think? It's a speculation I know, but yeah. Sure, sure. No, I, I completely agree with you. And, and the fact that we could only find these effects when we went to the most powerful settings. Um, my priors all along was that when you would hear these stories, and it's very common in the business press, 
that, oh, if we cut the capital gains tax rate by, you know, three, four, five points, suddenly there'd be like a 10% jump in the, the uh, S&P 500. I was like, that just seems crazy to me. I mean, uh, because even back then, there were so many more tax-efficient ways to hold equity. And I think you're exactly right. I think the other thing is, you know, it was not that long ago that uh, universities like the ones represented on this screen were investing in bonds. Now universities are investing in the wildest and craziest things you can find, and equities are a big part of that. Um, Foreigners hold far more shares in other countries than they used to hold. So I think you just go right on down the list. The traditional fully taxable individual account, I think, is a smaller and smaller component of what goes on uh, in stocks. And so I am not a big believer that the capital gains tax rate uh, likely has a huge effect on what um, the, the market value of, of equity is. So one thing, I mean, this has been this has been super fascinating, but I'm still not. I think we just need to kind of explicitly say, kind of back to my original question: if the if the prices, if the capital gains tax rate is going to increase, do we expect stock prices to go up or down? Let's assume we met all of our assumptions. It's a surprise. Is market price going to go up or down, or could it be? Could it? Does it depend? Yeah, I th- I think there could be short term effects. Um, but I'm, I think very short term. Um, so some of these things I was just saying to you, they reverse out within a week. So there could be, there could be short term little blips, but I think the long term effects is fairly negligible on stock prices of a capital gains tax rate going up or down by, you know, a few percentage points. Now, if you, you talked about, um, uh, the capital gains tax rate is going to go to 50% or something like that. Well, now, now we're in maybe a different world. Um, but if we're talking about the, the relatively minor movements that we've observed in the capital gains tax rate uh, in the last 50, 60 years in the U.S., I, I just don't think we're talking about major effects on the uh, on equity prices. So this what Jeff is saying kind of reminds me of um, – a day many years ago in your seminar, and we were talking about the lock-in effect versus the capitalization effect. And maybe that's, I think, what you're talking about, Jeff, where you the lock-in effect, I think, is kind of what you documented with the RJR thing. There's certain people who won't sell unless the price goes higher. And so you could imagine kind of a scenario where you say, well, if I raise the capital gains rate, then in order to get a market clearing price, the price is going to have to go up, which would mean stock prices go up. On the other hand, and that's which, kind of which your is pretty lock- counterintuitive, right? We increase the tax rate. We usually think like, oh, that's bad. Stock price goes up. Yeah, and you're, you're locked in. But then on the other hand, there's this capitalization effect. And the capitalization effect, as I remember it from many years ago, is something like this. Um, the future cash flows are what are impounded into price. And if I'm going to tax the gains, then the investor gets lower future cash flows, which means he's going to have less, which means the price should go down. And so there's like these opposing effects. Is that what you're talking about, Jeff? Yes. Which, and do we think that those kind of like cancel each other out or one is stronger in some cases than another? Or what, what do we think about capitalization versus lock-in? So I, I, agree with, I agree with the way you've defined both those things. I'm going to come back and say, I don't think the marginal investor is, meets those conditions. 
meets the meets all the assumptions that you began with. They're they're a foreigner that cheats on their taxes that's about to die or something. There could be both. There could be either or, and it could be countervailing uh, lock-in effects or capitalization effects that could move prices for a few days. But if you're talking about a long-term effect, so of I don't think you'd find it because I think there's other investors who are completely uh, – they are unaffected by whatever the capital gains tax rate is. Um, you know, I think if you look at a lot of um, well-to-do individuals, um, they've got far more investments in their IRAs and the 401ks and this sort of thing than they do in their taxable accounts. And they may very well be using their taxable accounts for things like we mentioned earlier. That's that's where they make charitable gifts and things like that. So I just I'm not terribly persuaded that the uh, the conditions are there to to make the capital gains tax meaningful in prices beyond some um, period of adjustment in which basically what we've got is inefficiencies in the the market. Which is, this might be a first for tax chats, actually. So and it feels almost like a little bit blasphemous, right? We've talked for more than 20 minutes. And so far, I think our conclusion is that, and I, I, it hurts my, hurts my heart a little bit, taxes don't matter. Is that, is that what you're, well, that what you're trying to say? Well, hold on just a minute. No, no, no. That can't be true because, <laughs> can't hang be on true. just a minute. It can't <laughs> be can't true. This is tax world, no. <laughs> Taxes must matter. That's the whole point here. But what I, what I think is fascinating about this is it probably depends on exactly the setting, exactly the circumstances surrounding the change, exactly who's involved in this thing, and that has changed over time. So taxes still matter. They just matter in like the strangest but on, but way that average, makes it hard to figure out. And on, on average, average, maybe. They don't yeah. matter. <laughs> <laughs> no, they matter so much we just can't figure it out, Jeff. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I don't know. Do, you, do What do you think, Doug? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you know, um, so I got interested in tax um, when I worked at Arthur Anderson thousands and thousands of years ago. And uh, and I was working a, a, at least a decent amount on a few mergers and acquisitions. And I was also at the same time, this is the early years, uh, early Reagan years. And uh, there had been major tax cuts. And there was articles in the Wall Street Journal and places like that every day talking about how taxes were driving the whole world in, in M&A activity. Now, as a, as a low-life staff person in a huge accounting firm, you know, I'm, I'm seeing like, you know, one tiny, tiny dot on a massive elephant and trying to infer what in the world this beast is. But... It was clear to me that there were a lot of factors other than taxes that were driving things. Now, taxes mattered, but but I think we have to understand at where and when, as you were saying, Scott, it's, it's very conditional. So statements that sort of taxes drive the whole world, I don't think that makes sense. Statements that taxes never matter, I don't think that makes sense. I think a lot of it is like, where do taxes matter? And so when I see statements in, again, like the business press, which imply these sweeping statements. Uh, they don't take into account the nuances, um, which are really significant. So I do think if, if, we, if we went back and said something like the RJR type scenario, where there's a, there's a hostile takeover um, and somebody's trying to buy up the shares, or maybe multiple people trying to buy up shares, I think you'd find the very same effect we found, you know, what now, that, that's, that's 
35 years ago or whenever that acquisition occurred. I think you'd find that very kind of same kind of thing going on. Um, but if you're if you're talking about just uh, you know we want to see what we can do to boost the market prices because prices are down, so we're gonna uh, let's say cut the capital gains tax rate. I, I don't think that's there. Are, there are other factors that are more are far more dominant. So so the. The, the the legislators up in D.C. might be sitting around saying, we got to get a little boost so we can win the elections. Oh, we'll cut the capital gains rate. And what you're saying is they may see no effect. It'd be like because of all the other That's nuances. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's really amazing to think about because it's so tempting to to say, oh, well, clearly you cut the rates. Like it's obviously got to help. And it's like, eh, it's actually not so obvious when you start digging and, into and what exactly what's fascinating is going on. To me, it's, it's obvious, not obvious that it would be any effect, but you could theoretically say, oh, that will actually decrease prices <laughs> or increase prices or the two net and we have a you know, non-taxable marginal investor. So maybe on average it's zero. So it's, it's uh, fascinating how, how a little bit more complex than one might think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, this is, this is amazing. I mean, clearly we've just scratched the surface, which is typically what we do on uh, tax chats. We scratch the surface and leave the details for smarter people than us. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. This is really fun to learn about something that is way more complicated than I think the typical person thinks about. And we appreciate your insights. Absolutely. Well, it's great to be with you guys. As I told Jeff, this is the world's greatest tax uh, podcast. So, you know, it's a tremendous honor to be part of it. <laughs> it goes right along with the world's largest tax museum. Well, it's, a, it's the best tax museum in Southern Chapel Hill. Is the best clear. tax museum in there Southern you go. Chapel you know, I mean, I, I am, I'm with royalty today, so it is, it's, uh, this will carry me for weeks probably. <laughs> well, uh, royalty is a new, uh, a new title that we had not yet been granted, but soon I'm going to just call him King <laughs> Jeffrey L. Hoop. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. Thank you again, Doug. Uh, my name is Scott Dyering. I'm a professor of accounting at Duke University, joined as always by my co-host Jeff Hoops. And our guest today has been Doug Shackelford, former dean of the Keenan Flagler School of Business at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, former professor of Dyering, barely passed me in his class, and former boss of Jeffrey L. Hoops. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.